0: Let me invite you to take out your Bible. You're going to need one of these, and I don't care if you've got it like this, or if you've got it as an app on your phone, or if you've got it on your computer, or wherever, or however you access the Word of God, here's what you need to know. At Grace Fellowship, we are convinced that this book contains the answers for life, so Find a way to get a hold of one. If you don't have a Bible, whether you're at home or whether you're with us today, if you don't have a Bible and you would like to have one, see one of us after the service if you're here on campus, or just email us at graceworthy.com and we will make sure you have a Bible. Uh, but for now, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark And I want you to turn to the last chapter of the book of Mark. So in your New Testament, it begins with Matthew. Mark is the next book. So it's early in the New Testament. And go to Mark chapter 16. And I want you to just follow along with me in your Bible, on your phone, however you're doing this. Follow along with me. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I want to read you a story. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Don't you love a good comeback story? (laughs) This is a great comeback story. If you joined Pastor Ricky online on Good Friday, you heard a lot about the story of what happened just a couple of days before this. The weekend began with darkness, but this is a great comeback story, and I am a sucker for a comeback story. I love a good comeback story. Uh, Let me just tell you a secret, and some of you are going to think I'm crazy because of this, but... I'm a big sports fan, and I'm actually a fan, a huge fan, of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and I'm a huge fan of the California, Anaheim, Disney, Los Angeles Angels. And I know that some of you think that's blasphemy, and I know that some of you think that's evil and wrong, and that you can't be a fan of both teams, but I'm telling you, I grew up in this area in a time when those guys were in completely different leagues, they never played each other, there was no interleague games, and the only chance that they would ever play against each other would have been in the World Series, and the Angels never make the World Series. So I could be a fan of both of those teams, and it was going to be fine for me. So it is not like the blasphemous sin of being a fan of UCLA and a fan of USC at the same time. That is the kind of thing that causes people to be cast into hell. But being a fan of the Dodgers and the Angels, that's a whole other thing. So I was a fan of both the Dodgers and the Angels. But my Angels had never, ever, ever made it to the World Series. And in 2002, somehow they squeaked in and somehow they made it to the postseason. And so I looked at my wife and I said, I got to go to these games. I got to go to these playoff games. And she said, have you seen our bank account balance? And I said, yeah, but this is why God created the credit card. And she kind of gave me that look. And then said, go ahead, take your son, go with your brothers, go to the games. So I bought tickets. I went to all the rounds of the playoffs whenever they were playing in Anaheim. And finally, they made it to the World Series. This is 2002. It feels like it was yesterday to me. They make it to the World Series. And I get tickets for all but Game 7 of the World Series whenever they were playing at home. And I will remember this till I die. It was game six of the World Series in 2002, the Angels against the Giants. The Giants are leading the series three games to two. All they need is one more win, and the Angels are out, and the Giants are champions. And I go to game six, and I'm sitting there on the third base side in the field level, and I remember this, that uh, they were down five to nothing in game six of the World Series, and it was already the seventh inning. People are actually starting to leave so they can beat the traffic out of the stadium. And I am just sitting there depressed, discouraged. The place is quiet and dead. Nobody's happy. And all of a sudden they started scoring runs. And there in the 7th inning, they scored some runs. I remember Scott Spezio, who was just a minor player on the team, hits a home run that barely clears the wall in right field and puts him within a run. That was in the 7th inning. In the 8th inning, Troy Gloss comes up, hits a double off the left center wall, and they go ahead. When the Angels went ahead in Game 6 of the World Series, I have never been in a place that was more excited than that place. I know that on Easter Sunday, the church should be more excited than that, but I'm telling you, we were screaming our heads off. The upper decks of the stadium were actually bouncing up and down as people were jumping. It was the craziest thing. We were so excited. They came back and won game six, and then they won game seven, and the... Angels were World Series champions in 2002. It's such a great comeback story. I have a painting hanging in my office of all the players on that team signed by every one of them. Every day I sit at my desk, I look at that painting, and I remember the great comeback story of the 2002 Angels. Everybody loves a good comeback story. But this Easter Sunday... I have got a comeback story for you, the likes of which the world has never seen before and will never see again. Now again, if you were online with us for the Good Friday service, you know that the focus of that service was all about the cross. It was all about the gruesome, horrific, barbaric murder of Jesus Christ. It was about his torture, his bleeding, his separation from the Father, his carrying the whole uh, cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He was taken off the cross just before sundown, dead. And the story ends on Friday incredibly sad. Jesus dies on the cross. Oh, now... We know it's good news, right? Now we call it Good Friday. Why do we call it Good Friday now? Because Easter Sunday happened. And we know that. But not then. When it happened, it was the most devastating event that any follower of Jesus had ever experienced in their lives. People who had put their hopes in Jesus were devastated. You know why? Because death had won. Death is a scary foe. And nobody had ever figured out a way to defeat death. And when the Roman soldier took that spear and shoved it up through the ribs of Jesus into his heart and blood and water flowed out showing that he was dead. Nobody called it Good Friday then. It was devastating. Jesus died on the cross. I know you've probably heard that before. But it's true. Jesus died on the cross. And now we understand why that was good for us. But we're only able to see that because of Easter Sunday. Without Easter Sunday, Good Friday is forever known as Bad Friday. The day that our hopes were dashed. The day that our lives were ruined. But Sunday changed all that. Now, the fact that Jesus died on the cross... In and of itself, that fact is unremarkable. You know, today, people don't get crucified, at least not commonly. And so, we think of this as such a remarkable thing. But in that time, the Romans crucified people every single day. You have to realize that for five centuries, the Romans practiced crucifixion as a way of controlling the people that they ruled over. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, were crucified by the Romans. In that sense, Jesus' death was unremarkable. Just another guy who died on the cross. Sad, but unremarkable. Of course, now we know that it was on the cross that he paid the price for our sins. But if the cross was payment for our sins, I am here to tell you that the empty tomb is the receipt for the payment. You say, you say Jesus died on the cross, I say so what? So did a lot of people. Lots of people died on the cross. It was gruesome, it was cruel, it's sad, it was inhumane. It was barbaric, but it's unremarkable if not for Easter Sunday. The bloody cross was the payment for our sins, but the empty tomb is the evidence that the payment was accepted, that, that God stamped the receipt paid in full. That's what the empty tomb Means to us, you know. Romans six twenty three lays this out for us very clearly. It says this: the wages of sin is death. There's never been any uh, confusion about this in God's law. He has always told people all the way back to the Garden of Eden: if you sin, you will die. It's not a punishment so much as it is a warning. God designed a system that was designed to bring Him glory and bring our lives into line with His plan for us so that we could have an abundant life. And if we choose a different path, it's going to lead to destruction. If you sin, you die. The wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three a That's the bad news. And if He had stayed in the tomb, that would be the end of the story. Ah, but Romans 6.23b goes on to say, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Good Friday shows us that. The cross reminds us that. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Because if he had stayed in the tomb... The cross would have meant nothing to us. Just another guy crucified by the Romans. In the years leading up to Jesus' ministry, there were dozens of religious leaders who came on the scene claiming to be somebody. And they would get a following. Some of them even claimed to be the Messiah or some prophet sent from God. And they would get a following and the people would begin to follow them. And the Romans would get nervous and the Romans dealt with it the same way every time. They killed the leader. And you know what happened when they killed the leader? The movement ended. So they did the same thing with Jesus. But 2,000 years later... Here we are dressed in pastel colors. 2,000 years later, here we are saying he is risen indeed. 2,000 years later, here we are lifting our hands, our voices, and our hearts to him in praise. 2,000 years later, the church is still the greatest movement in the history of the world. Why? Because he is risen. Because the tomb is empty. Because death has been defeated. Because he paid the price for our sin. And we have a receipt called an empty tomb to prove it. Guys, if I had time, I would go into all of the proof that the tomb is empty. I would go into all of the evidence that shows that the resurrection happened. But for today, let me just say this. If you're skeptical about the historicity of that, if you're not sure that really happened, I encourage you, do your own study. Do the research. You'll find that the evidence is pretty overwhelming. But let me just give you some undisputed facts about this. This is undisputed. Jesus is an historical figure. There really was a guy... In Nazareth, who, who operated in Galilee, who operated in Jerusalem, who was a religious leader by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and he really uh, led a movement, and everyone, both religious and unreligious in the historical world, agrees to this. This is an undisputed fact. Here's another undisputed fact. He claimed to be God, not once, not twice, not in some strange way, not in, a, in some riddle. He actually claimed to be God over and over and over and over and over again. Here's another undisputed fact. He was crucified on a hill called Calvary. He was put to death and he was laid in a borrowed tomb. This much is undisputed. His death was confirmed both by Romans and by Jewish leaders, both of whom were in enemy camps. This is undisputed. His dead body was laid in a tomb that belonged to the family of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders whose group had him put to death in the first place. And that tomb was guarded by soldiers after it was sealed with a heavy stone. That's undisputed. And here's one more thing that's undisputed. That tomb is empty today. On the third day, that tomb was found to be empty. On the third day, that stone was rolled away. On the third day, the tomb was empty. And just in case you think that his disciples stole the body to keep their movement going, let me remind you that of the 11 remaining disciples after Judas committed suicide, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them were brutally tortured and murdered rather than give up their argument that they had seen the risen Christ. And the 10th, uh, the 11th I should say, was, um, was um, banished to an island where he lived out his years rather than confessing that they had made the whole thing up, stolen the body, and Jesus was not risen. I'll tell you this, you don't do that if you know the body has been stolen. He appeared to many people in the flesh. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. He ate with his disciples, proving that he wasn't just some apparition of some sort. They touched him. They spent time with him for over a month before he ascended into heaven. And neither the Romans nor the Jews were able to produce the body, even though they knew what tomb it had been laying in. Paul was very clear about this. Easter's the biggest day on the calendar. And that's why Easter is my favorite day of the year. Because without Easter, none of the rest of the story matters. Guys, if Easter didn't happen, if those eight verses that I just read to you are baloney, then take your Bible and throw it in the trash. The whole rest of the book is meaningless apart from this claim that he is risen. That's a fact. And Paul knew that. And Paul, by the way, who is a writer of much of our New Testament, uh, he was very clear about this himself. By the way, he too saw the risen Christ. And he too was put to death rather than claiming that Christ was not risen. And and I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you're still in Mark, just go a few books to the right. And you're going to find 1 Corinthians right after Romans. And I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read to you beginning in verse 1. And This is Paul writing. He says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you also stand. By which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. "...for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles." And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, I, I want you to understand this. Paul is saying. This is of utmost importance. This is what the gospel rests on. Our whole faith is meaningless if this is not true. But it is true. He died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And he mentions these people by name. He talks about the 500 to whom he appeared. He mentions specific people who are still alive to this day as he writes this, he says. So you can go and interview them. You can see if their stories match up. And he, he mentions a guy named Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter, as you know, is an apostle. We're going to talk more about him later. But, but he's speaking for himself. Saul becomes Paul. And he went, on, and he went about um, persecuting the church until he met the risen Christ. And upon re- meeting the risen Christ, his whole life's purpose was turned around. And he became a leader of the church. James is mentioned here. This is not James the Apostle. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it's important that James is mentioned here. um, And and let me just tell you why. He's Jesus' brother. Now, I want you to actually do this wherever you are, if you're in your living room or if you're out here on the lawn or wherever you are. Uh, Raise your hand if you have at least one brother. Just raise your hand so we can all kind of get a feel. that A lot of us have brothers, right? So I want you to picture your brother, Okay, Pick one of your brothers and picture your brother. And let me ask you this. What would he have to do to convince you that he was God? <laughs> I have two brothers and I can tell you what they would have to do to convince me that they were God. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> There's, I grew up with these guys. There's nothing they could do to convince me that they're God. But If I knew they were dead and buried and they raised themselves from the dead and then came to spend time with me, I might be willing to listen to their story. James, the brother of Jesus, became a follower of Christ not before but after the resurrection. And he becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And he wrote the book of James in your New Testament. Listen, Easter Sunday goes down in history as the greatest comeback of all time. He defeated sin on the cross. He defeated death through the empty tomb. And he lives forevermore as our champion over sin and over death. He is victorious. Now, let's keep reading As the story goes on, verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There's a lot of ifs in that story, if there's no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, if in fact the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, if Christ has not been raised, if, 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 if. And it's capped off by the biggest and saddest if of them all. Look again at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If he is not raised, we will not be raised. If he is raised, we shall be raised. And so what a pathetic life to dedicate yourself to the glory of this Jesus, who is in fact just another dead criminal laying in a tomb somewhere. If Christ is not raised, but Christ has been raised. Look at verse 20. I love it. It begins with but. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's why we celebrate. That's why Easter is the biggest day of the year. But before I let you go and, and eat your hollow chocolate bunnies and your little marshmallow peeps, before I let you go, I need to point out one more thing. Go back to our original passage in Mark chapter 16. And I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 16, verse 7. It's a part of the story that we just ignore, we just gloss over, don't pay any attention to. We're just reading right along. Verse 7, the angel says this to the women at the tomb. But go, tell his disciples and Peter... He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Have you ever noticed that it says, go tell his disciples. Peter, by the way, is one of those disciples. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Isn't that redundant? Why does he have to say and Peter? It's like he says, hey, listen, ladies, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go and find his followers and tell them to go ahead to Galilee where they're going to meet him. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Before you go, before you go, one thing make sure you tell Peter. Of all of the other disciples, make sure you tell Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter because Peter is the one who needs to hear it the most. Listen, Peter was guilty of the same sin that Judas was guilty of. He turned his back on Christ. Remember, he swore, I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And of course, as he sat by that fire on the night of Jesus' crucifixion and the trials that Jesus was facing, he actually denied that he knew him, not once, not twice, but three times. And the book of Luke tells us that on the third time, Jesus heard the denial and stared at Peter as he did it. Peter was broken because he knew he was not worthy of forgiveness from God. So the angel made a point of naming Peter. Go and tell his disciples. And whatever you do, make sure you tell Peter because he really needs to hear this. You see, the empty tomb is an invitation to grace. The empty tomb is all about grace. And grace that was enough for Peter is grace that is enough for you too. I know you're not worthy. I know I'm not worthy. Paul tells us He persecuted the church. He put Christians to death. He called himself the least of the apostles. He called himself one untimely born. He called himself the chief of sinners. Do you think he was worthy? But the empty tomb was grace enough for him. James said that his brother Jesus was a crazy fool. On two occasions at least that we know of, he tried to go and get Jesus and bring him home so that he would shut down his earthly ministry. He was convinced that he was making the whole thing up. James had worked against the cause of his own brother who turns out to be the son of God. Do you think James was worthy? And yet the empty tomb was grace enough for him. And Peter, Peter sold him out, cursed as he did it, swore that he never knew him, and had Jesus look him in the eye as he did it. He went away and wept. He was broken. He was destroyed. Do you think he was worthy? But the empty tomb was grace enough for even Peter. The empty tomb is an invitation to grace. But the empty tomb is also an invitation to purpose. He says, I'm going to give you this grace so your life can have a purpose. Tell them to come meet Jesus in Galilee because Jesus. Has a plan for their lives because Jesus has an assignment for them. Jesus wanted them to come to Galilee and meet him so that he could commission them into a life that was gonna change the world. This Easter, I wanna remind you that Easter is more than a great comeback story for Jesus, Easter is a great comeback story for you, for you. It's an invitation to grace for you. It's an invitation to purpose for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the empty tomb is an invitation to receive the grace of God and live out the purpose of God. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Even death has no power over the amazing grace of God. That's why we celebrate today. That's why Easter is the day above all days. That is why we shout from the top of our lungs, He is risen! He is risen indeed. God, we give you praise. We give you thanks. We give you glory and honor on this most holy of days. On this day, Lord, we lift up your name and we confess that you alone are the victor over sin, that you alone are the victor over death, and that through our relationship with you, we share in that victory. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the bloody cross. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the empty tomb. Oh, Jesus, thank you for life everlasting. And all God's people said, amen.